Now, if you would, just before we come to the Lord's table this morning, turn with me over to 2 Timothy 3.2 as our, our, our jumping off point, and uh, I would like to talk a little bit about some of the blessed things that uh, God wants to speak to our hearts about in reference to the last days and the great trials and the burdens that are upon us. We're living in very difficult days. Uh, the things that I just said would indicate that. But I think that, uh, if you'll remember, before our Christmas uh, season set in and I uh, separated my messages from some of the ones I was bringing on the second coming of Christ, that uh, I had mentioned that uh, the great uh, expectancy, the second coming of Christ, is given as the great incentive of the church in its going forward with God. Uh, that the Lord Jesus is coming again. It's the great incentive. We know that uh, Satan and death are to be ultimately defeated. That in the book of Revelation, Satan is finally cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. And death and hell are cast into the same lake of fire. And in Corinthians it tells us the final enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy. We don't look forward to it, the dying process. Doctors, uh, I listened to the other day on the radio. One doctor has believed that he has found ways that man can live forever. These are well-known physicians. He says, there is no explanation of death. No reason, he says, for the body decaying. We can find the answers, and man can live forever. But they forget that the verdict of God was death. The wages of sin is death. It has nothing to do with doctors and science. They don't know why men die. We know why men die. God placed the verdict upon sin, both physical death and spiritual deaths. And the only way we can really know God is through the rebirth, being born again of the incorruptible seed of the Word of God and receiving the Holy Spirit of God into our breast, the new birth, the second birth. And so it has been well said, born once, die twice born twice, die once. You've been born first of the flesh and then of the spirit. You only have one death. That's all. But if you've only been born once, remember the second death mentioned in Revelation when it says that those who were not written in the Lamb's book of life were cast into the lake of fire. So, beloved, this second coming of Christ is most blessed to us. It is the great incentive to the church. It is the incentive for victory over sin, you see. Christ is coming, and the great call of God to us is to be pure. He says, every man that hath this hope that Christ is coming purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Because we know we'll face the judgment seat of Christ. Are you a believer? you will face the judgment seat of Christ to answer for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad. So it is the great incentive to live a pure life. 
get a vision of Christ's coming and know that he is coming with judgment. Oh, as your Savior, but the judgment seat of Christ, we shall have to answer what we've done since we've been saved. Sins forgiven, sins cleansed away, the sin question settled, having died with Christ and death is a penalty for sin, you can't pay more than the penalty of death for anything. Whether it's the vilest of sins or the most terrible of sins, death is the ultimate penalty that's been paid by Christ. I don't see how we could ever think anything else but this. It says, in that he died, he died unto sin once. In that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Wherefore, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Likewise, it says, the same way as Christ. He died to sin, he's alive to God. Likewise, you yourselves, dead to sin and alive to God. So there is the great incentive to be victorious over sin, to live a victorious life. Now, if I might this morning, there is a, well, several things, but there is something that I felt that we should think of this morning as the new year begins. For the second coming of Christ is given as the great incentive for Christian worship. It is a call of God to get Christians absolutely faithful to God. And it is the second coming that is used as that incentive. That they should be absolutely faithful in their attendance to the Lord's house. They're to let nothing hinder them. If it would not hinder a man from getting to his business to make a dollar, then it shouldn't hinder him on Sunday to get to the Lord's house. If a man will struggle on a Monday or a Tuesday to get to his business, though he's a little bit ill or has a headache or doesn't feel just right, then the same thing should be applied to the Lord's house on Sunday. There should not be that intenseness to make the dollar and then a lacking in spirit to get to God's house. And do you know how easy it is to find excuses, simple little things? Someone has said that the great Sunday illness, it's an odd thing, but some people never get a headache till Sunday morning. Anything can keep them from God's house. And the Lord's word is very clear that he wants faithfulness, that he doesn't want anything to interfere with that. May I make this very clear now? This is the new year. No family gathering should keep a person from the house of God. No friends should keep a person from the house of God. No recreation should keep a person from the house of God. Our calling is to be faithful to him who loved us and gave himself for us. And if I once get the vision that Christ is my bridegroom and I am the bride, and I think of the relationship of a bridegroom and bride to each other in their love, their intimacy, the tenderness, the compassion, 
And I think that I could so easily, through some other little thing, forsake the house of God, how terrible it would be. Let me read the verse that I think is rather wonderful, Hebrews 10.25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. Notice that. You encourage one another to come. Now, you have to be terribly careful how you do this. You know, I've often said, there are, aren't there always two ways of speaking? You know, here you are, you're out in the, in the Norfolk. Here come a few folks up the stairs. And you walk over to them and you say, where were you last Sunday? Well, you know, they probably feel like, well, I might as well go home. But what a difference it is if you go over and with a tender voice you say, yeah, Mr. Last Sunday, were you well? There's a, there's a feeling of heart, you see. It's one thing to have that, you know, where were you? And another thing to say, I missed you. Just a simple little thing. But it's so important. And here, God says you're to exhort one another. Exhort each other, he says. Notice I'll go on with that verse. He says, but, don't forsake that assembling of yourselves together, but exhorting one another... And I put in my Bible, not planning dinners or parties or excursions with each other, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Ah, second coming. You see? So much the more as ye see the day approaching. Here we're talking about the world scene, the coming of Christ, the day is approaching, it's near. And God says, in that time, I want my people to exhort each other because there is going to be a tremendous power of satanic delusion upon even the people of God. And he says, when iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And we're to be careful that our love does not wax cold. Remember in Revelation when, when, Paul, when, when John speaks of the church at Ephesus, he has to say, I have somewhat against you, Jesus says, because you have left your first love. It hasn't been stirred up at all, and you are not loving me as you did when you were first saved. And may I say this? If your love has waned in Christ, oh, you must stir it up. And there's no way to stir it up except by the reading of the Word of God, for that's his love letter to you. You can't stir up the love for Jesus Christ by just saying, I want to love you more. You can't stir up your love for Christ by just saying, well, I'll go to him in prayer and pray for it. The Lord would say to you, now listen. The best way you can show your love for me is by reading my letters to you. And what bride is there that has been in love with her husband that hasn't got that little bunch of letters home tied with a little ribbon? Maybe you haven't looked at them for a while. You threw all the other letters away. 
after you got married. You know, the other ones you didn't want around. You got rid of those. But the ones from the bride, those you like to reread because they speak of love. And here's God's love letter to us. And he's asking us, be faithful, exhort one another. Much more, he says, as you see the day approaching. And then it says, for yet a little while, and he shall come, he that shall come will come and will not tarry. And so, beloved, here we are in that day. Now, the people in 2 Timothy 3, that I will read of. It says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent. Well, I won't read it all, but the list is tremendous. Now, these people, beloved, are not accidents. Because not only does the Bible tell us from eternity past, but in the last 25 to 50 years, the psychiatric field has fallen much in line with that which we've been preaching for years, of biblical truths about children. You go to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist wants to dig back. You come with your guilt complexes with all the problems all the trials, and he wants to dig back, to get back as far as he can to your childhood, to find what? What was the feeling between mother and father and children, and what happened here to crush your life? Because no psychiatrist believes that life is crushed at that point where you're crushed. He believes it was crushed back there. So that when we come to this area, when we speak of the worship of Christ, we have to think of what God is saying here about parents, about children. He says, disobedient to parents, and then to parents, he says, having no natural affections. And I can't help but think that of all of the ones that God speaks here, they are the product of lifeless and usually godless mothers and fathers who have not applied what they knew in the lives of their children and their family as they brought them up. And I especially believe that mothers have a tremendous responsibility. I believe the scripture is very clear on this. On Mother's Day, we exalt motherhood. And well, we should. We should exalt motherhood. But, beloved, often becoming a mother does not make you a godly mother. Nor does becoming a mother make you a saint of God. Although sometimes you might think so. But motherhood and the mother's attitude toward her children and the way those children are brought up is going to have a great deal to do with the future and whether some of these might be amongst those of the last days, disobedient, incorruptible, fierce, violent, loveless, and all psychiatry 
would agree with the scripture, let us take them back to the beginnings with their mothers and fathers and let us see what the family impressed upon the heart of the child. I'm amazed today. You know, we often say, you know how, was it Lincoln or somebody who said, all that I am I owe to my mother, I don't know who it was, but you know, this is a, a glib statement. All that I am I owe to my mother. But I want to tell you that that glib statement has a lot to say. For much is owed to a mother. And I can amaze that so many mothers today who cry out in chagrin over their wandering children and say, what have I done wrong? Could honestly look back into their lives and if in all honesty they looked at every single day and think of what did I do with my children? How much did they really believe that I loved Christ? How much stress did I place upon my Christian life? Where were my stresses? Were my stresses on pleasure, entertainment, on clothing, on the house, on all these things? How about my own son and my own daughter's soul? Where were my stresses in life? Being honest with ourselves, not hiding anything, not saying I was a good mother. And as I've said before, because you feed them and clothe them and have a house and all that, this is not being a good mother. A good mother in God's eyes is a certain kind of mother who brings her child up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and knows that when he is old, what he will not depart from the way. And I want to tell you, I hold ourselves responsible. I may not know where the errors are, but they know that I know they're not on God's side. They can't be on God's side. And if God made a promise and said, bring your child up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and when they are old, they will not depart from it, I believe it is a promise. But I believe that our ideas of how to bring children up sometimes are so remiss and do not fit into the Bible at all. If we honestly were to look into our lives and say, how much time did I ever spend in the Word of God with my son or my daughter? How much time did I ever spend in prayer? How much time did I ever spend in devotions? Beloved, if I were to say that 15 minutes a day could be spent in devotions, I hardly think there's a man that says, I can't spend 15 minutes because my business will fail. Or a mother who says, I can't spend 15 minutes with my children because I won't get the house clean. Or I can't spend 15 minutes a day because the meals won't get done. But these things that, as I said, the psychiatric field points to us and says, look back. And God has been saying this down through the ages to mothers. And fathers too. But mothers specifically. Mothers bear the children. Mothers bear the responsibility with the children of bringing them up. They're with the child probably nine-tenths of the time or eight-tenths of the time. And the father today may spend one-tenth or two-tenths of his time with his children. This was not true maybe 50 years ago. But even when I was a boy, my father had to leave us and go to business. But there was a day when the children and the father and the mother were together in a little village and father had many contacts with his children. 
many areas where he had close relationships, but not today like it was. Mothers have the close contact with their children, and I believe God foresaw that, that mothers would have the closeness with their children. Let me just give a few verses before we come to the Lord's table to mothers this morning because it means so much. Proverbs 29.15 A child left unto itself brings his mother to shame. Imagine. That's God speaking. A child left to itself brings its mother to shame. When, you know, sometimes I go, you know, I have to visit people. Family comes in the church. Maybe the, the children come to Sunday school. And I go and I'll say to the mother, it's been so nice to have your children at Sunday school. And they'll say, or she'll say, well, we just really came last Sunday pastor to try it out. Our children are going to pick their own church. Here they are, five years old, six years old. Our children are going to pick their own church. Next Sunday, we're going over to the Unitarian Church in Garden City, and we've laid out a schedule. I have this. We've laid out a schedule. On the third Sunday, they will be going to the Lutheran Church. On the fourth to the Presbyterian, on the fifth to the Methodist, and after they've gone to about seven or eight churches, then whichever one they like is all right with us. And beloved, I don't have to say this, Mother, you are responsible. It says in the Word of God to train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. And here God says, a child left unto itself, its own reasonings, brings his mother to shame. What a terrible thing I have to think of. Bringing a mother to shame. Listen, young mothers, I prayed with you, begin right. Be on your knees with your children. Oh, mothers, have you given up? Maybe something hasn't gone right with the children. Well, don't give up. Does a Christian ever give up? Never. If you've made a mistake, you've Possibly you weren't saved when the children were little. Oh, right, now's your time to really pray and ask God to do something mighty in the, in the lives of those grown children. Maybe as a Christian you made your mistakes. We all do. Who's perfect? Some are overzealous in their punishment of the children. Others are overpermissive in their children. I'm talking of Christians. We're all different, none are the same. Maybe you've made a mistake. Maybe things are not going right with the children. And it's upsetting you inside. Well, why don't you begin now to get right with God so that the children won't be ashamed to you? Mother, a child left unto its own reasonings is unto its mother ashamed. Why? Because God knows that that little baby nurtured from the mother's breast, held and fed and cleansed, kept 
clean and pure, tenderly loved every day who have natural affection. God says there's some having any natural affection, but having a normal natural affection plus the Word of God and the Spirit of God dwelling in their breast, all they'll yearn for is one thing. If eternal life is in Christ, my great job is one. Oh, I'll feed them, I'll clothe them, I'll never be over-permissive or over-solicitous to them. I'll never pour out things upon them as though things are going to make them anything. But I will love them and I will speak tenderly to them and I will shed tears over them that their souls might be one for Jesus Christ. This will be the burden of my soul and if I have to sacrifice my whole life and give it and die for it, I'll do it. Because who cares if I have clothes and jewelry and houses and all that if my children are plunged into the pit of hell because of my unfaithfulness and my lack of love and compassion and my interest in the Word of God and my devotional life in every area. And I fail to train up my son or daughter in the way they shall go and they depart because I fail. I can't think of a worse deathbed than the deathbed of a born-again Christian who honestly, in their heart, not what the world thinks, but in their heart looks back at their life as a mother or a father and says, the church doesn't know it. <laughs> but Father, thou knowest. I'm a failure. I never had time for my children in spiritual things. Pleasure enamored me. I ran here and I ran there and I gathered about and I built my big business and I did it all. Now, I can take nothing. And the worst thing is, I have nothing, not even my children. Oh, I'd like to go on, but we have the Lord's table. One more verse, and I just give it to you, and then I will close. But there's an, another verse that says in Proverbs 10:1, "A foolish son is the heaviness of his mother's heart." Listen to me, son or daughter. May I plead with you this morning? I wish all the college kids were here today, too. Let me ask you a simple question. Are you the heaviness of your mother's heart? Are you? Hmm? Mom been crying a lot about you? You look at mom when you go home, huh? Yeah, she, she manages to keep a pretty happy demeanor in the in the church. No one would know it, but mom goes to bed lots of nights and cries herself to sleep about you. Are you breaking her heart? If you could see the soft tears that she sheds, how could your heart not tenderly come? And want to know, as Paul says of Timothy, you know the God of your mother.
Could you really be that unresponsive to the purest love of life of a good mother? Could you? And mother, may I ask you once again, with all the love of my heart as your pastor, is it his or her fault, or is it yours? And if it's yours, won't you get right with God? Let us pray. Now, Father, we realize that it tells us in the last days there will be disobedience of children, which will be very exaggerated. That's what it means. And there'll be a great lack of natural affection, which should be involved, especially between mothers and children. And you've made it very clear. You never speak to fathers this way. You have something to say to fathers about not causing the children to get angry with them. For men are more arrogant, more difficult sometimes, but a woman is to have that tender, understanding, compassionate, holy love that is born of the very fact that God privileged her to be a mother. And Father, I pray this morning that all mothers here, if they're young mothers, mothers-to-be, whatever they may be, that they will dedicate their lives to Jesus Christ. And remember the word that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. And to remember that a child left unto itself is unto its mother a shame, and that a son who has strayed from the way is a heaviness to his mother's heart. Father, put your hand upon all of our hearts, fathers and mothers alike. We have our part as fathers to be leaders spiritually, guide our families. But Lord, as we start a new year, we believe that whether there's young children, the mothers can start well, and if mothers have made many mistakes, and then, Lord, I don't believe that any of us are perfect. We all have made our mistakes, fathers and mothers alike. It doesn't matter who we are. When I speak to this people, I speak to my own heart. Lord, whatever mistakes we've made, forgive us, and then may our prayer lives really be fervent that God will change things, for nothing is impossible to God to change things and make our sons and daughters all that they should be as Christ's own. In his name we pray. Amen.